Thank you guys took my challenge last week and uh, you out sang the first service today, so good job. <laughs> I was reading a book recently about one of my favorite basketball stars of all time. When I was growing up, this player was all the rage. Everyone idolized him. We were glued to his games. We collected his trading cards, we tracked his statistics, and whenever we were playing basketball, we pretended that we were him. But as I read this book that was an insider's account of him and his team, it really was an eye-opener to me. He wasn't the romanticized guy that we imagined. He wasn't the perfect player or perfect teammate. In fact, he was, he was a very flawed young man driven to a fault, jaded, tenacious, selfish, often just mean to others around him. Now, none of that means that I couldn't still cheer for him as a player, and it didn't mean that he was all bad, but there was a lot more than met the eye of the, the public perception of him, and my picture of him was tarnished. Now, I want to ask you this question today. Has your view of yourself and your own goodness ever been tarnished? And when was it that you realized that maybe, just maybe you weren't a very good person either? Maybe you haven't yet. And you're still under the illusion or delusion that you are a pretty good person. At least more good than bad. Right? You might not be perfect, but you're pretty proud of who you are. It is a pervasive belief in our world that people are basically good. And it's also a pernicious lie. If the, the self-inflated balloon of your personal goodness and pride has not been popped yet, then I might forewarn you, God's word might act like a pin today. Pop. In Deuteronomy 9 and 10, Moses essentially does that for the people of Israel. He pops their balloon of self-righteousness. That might sound painful or unpleasant, but it was very much for their long-term good. And it will be good for us, too. Because only when we understand, truly understand who we are, or will we truly appreciate and understand the grace and the mercy that God has given to us? So go ahead and, and turn to Deuteronomy 9 if you haven't already. Since the time of the, when this was written, times have obviously changed. Contexts have changed drastically. Even God's covenants have changed. But one thing that hasn't changed is the sinful depravity of the human heart. And in this way, the Israelites about to enter the promised land were no different than us today. In chapter 9, Moses is preparing, for what, for preparing them for what was coming soon. Even that very day, he says this, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? 
Um, we've seen this recently, how the Israelites were outnumbered and overmatched as they were venturing into Canaan. When they had previously chickened out about entering the promised land, this was one of the reasons why. The spies came back from the land and said, there are giants in the land. We can't face them. And, and the, these are the Anakim, as it says here, who it is said descended from the mysterious Nephilim of Genesis 6. Apparently, tales of their exploits went ahead of them. It says, and you, whom you know and of whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? No one can. Well, someone could. Look at verse 3. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. And so God was far more invincible than they were. Israel was bound to be afraid in this situation, right? But Moses' strategy to combat their fear wasn't just to, to shrink the giants down to size. His strategy was to remind them of their greater ally in this war. God would go before his people like a, a raging inferno, incinerating everything in his path. So really everyone thought that no one could stand against the sons of Anak, but in reality what would happen is no one would be able to stand before the sons of Israel. It says, Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Now this brings us back to our questions about this holy war which Israel was about to wage. And so how could God destroy them or order Israel's people to, to make other people perish quickly? We talked about this at length a couple weeks ago, but I want to add some things to this discussion today, including arguably the most important point when it comes to this topic. So remember, first of all, that this was God's war. It was not Israel's. You can see that again here. He said, Know therefore today that he who goes over before you, he will destroy them and subdue them. Verse 4, Do not say in your heart, After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. This was God's war. Also, notice some of the language that's used here. Like, they would be driven out or thrust out. It's not the language of annihilation, but of displacement. Or expulsion. Yes, it says they will be, they'll perish and be destroyed, but it also says they will be driven out. There's probably a combination of these things. It's very possible that most people had already fled the land by the time Israel got to them. Now, this is a, a key thing to remember when it comes to the innocent civilians question. If you think about Almost any movie or book where a big army invades a place, one of the very first things that is done is to send the innocents far away. Right? Get the, the women and the children and the elderly out of, the, out of here. Get them out of here. Flee. Soldiers, you stay behind. Right? Some scholars argue fairly persuasively that Israel actually never targeted non-combatants in this war because they weren't there to be combated. Another thing to notice here, again, is that Israel didn't win because of their impressiveness. And we saw before, Israel was the, the weak one going in, the, the bullied, the outnumbered people group here. But now we also see that God wasn't giving them the land because they deserved it. 
No. Look at verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people." You know the, the classic saying, the victors write the history books? It's true. The survivors of any war, they get to control the narrative. It's their perspective that lives on, which tends to make the victors look really good in hindsight and the, the losers really bad, right? At first glance, you may think the Bible does this too. I mean, Moses does bring up the Canaanites' wickedness here. However, he... He doesn't paint Israel in a very great light either, does he? Again, verse 6, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. This doesn't sound like a victor dictating the story. We're good, they're bad. And this is, they're not good. But listen, neither are we. Which is, by the way, drastically different than mainstream holy wars. Just imagine ISIS chanting, Death to infidels! We are infidels too! It doesn't happen. Right? In contrast, Israel is self-depreciated and disparaged all, all, all over the place in Scripture. Here, Moses spends about two verses talking about Canaan's sin, and then promptly spends around two chapters talking about Israel's sin. But here's the thing. Israel might not have deserved the land, but Canaan did deserve judgment. The conquest of Canaan was God meeting out justice that was a long time coming. This was not Israel making a land grab. This was God saying, okay, it's time. Enough's enough. See, God had been incredibly patient with the Canaanite society. Don't believe me? Way back in Genesis 15, when God was making a covenant with Abraham, he let Abraham in on some of the secrets of the future, what would happen, and he let him in on how his great-grandkids would end up in Egypt and where they would be enslaved for centuries before being delivered back into Canaan. But then, and only then, would they return because, and this is significant, the Canaanites' iniquity or sin was not yet complete. So what this means is that, that God actually let his people go through generations of slavery because he was patient with Canaan. Their sin wasn't ready. But eventually they, they exhausted his patience. They got to a point of no return. The Bible often talks about people, groups, or nations sinning until they are ripe for judgment as if they're a, a fruit or a grain ready to be harvested. 
And when it came time for Israel to come home, Canaan was now ripe for judgment. Well, that's convenient, isn't it? No, actually, that's an intricate, sovereign plan. Perfectly timed. When we think God is cruel when he judges, we betray a very low view of sin. We severely underestimate sin's severity. Sin is not petty. And we tend to view sins as little naughty habits or guilty pleasures. And if that's all sin was, then yeah, you could see this as an overreaction. But sin is much more than that. Sin is, is blatant, rebellious, deeply offensive treason against our Creator. It, it displaces God from His rightful place in life. It's, it's really like us shaking our fist at heaven. I will be God. I determine what's right and wrong. I'll live my life the way I want to. Clay Jones says, We do not appreciate the depths of our own depravity, the horror of sin, and the righteousness of God. Consequently, it is no surprise that when we see God's judgment upon those who committed the sins we commit, that complaint and protest arises within our hearts. If the conquest was deserved judgment, it was kind of like a medical amputation. You don't walk into a, a hospital and say, I've got a, a sprained ankle, you're going to need to cut it off. Right? No, amputation is, is a last resort. It's only required in dire circumstances, like if you've got a, a deadly infection in your leg that could even kill you, maybe. It, it's like God needed to amputate Canaanite society from the land, or else their wickedness would infect the people that were coming in. We may think, there's no way the Canaanites were that bad, were they? Well, Greg Kugel says, even by ancient standards, the Canaanites were a hideously nasty bunch. And he's not exaggerating. The worship of false gods alone would have been enough to merit God's judgment. We know that from Scripture. But their culture was deeply shaped and influenced by this idolatry, by their horrific gods that they had. And there's really no way to, to keep this PG, so I don't cover your kids' ears if you need to. But they believed that their gods controlled peoples and animals and the land's fertility. And so sex was seen as a magical act, something that, that stimulated their gods to copulate. And then rain was believed to be the fruit of sexual acts between their gods. So how do you get that to happen? Well, the more sex you have on high places, the better your harvests are going to be. So orgies, adultery, incest, homosexuality, bestiality, pedosexuality, that's adults and children, Normal, commonplace. They also engaged heavily in, in witchcraft and divination. And then there's the child sacrifice. Up to age four, by the thousands, 
I'm not joking. I've got a, a son who's about to turn four this month. Even the, the thought of this is nauseating. And in fact, Leviticus 18 says, But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations that the people did before, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. That's what's going on here. If Canaan was a nation today, practicing what they practiced then, we'd all be horrified. We'd be, probably be begging God to judge them. Really? We'd be lamenting, where is God? Why is he not judging evil? How long, O oh Lord? You see the double standard there? Right? Greg Kukul says, would we not question his goodness, his power, or even his existence if he did not eventually vanquish this evil? Yet when God finally does act, we are quick to find fault with him. We can't have it both ways. Right? We, we need God to judge evil. We even want him to judge evil, just as long as it's not our own evil. Derek Rishmally further explains, We're often told our culture doesn't want an angry God of judgment. This age can't abide any more teaching on a God full of wrath who will prepare his weapons for battle with the unrepentant oppressors of God's people. But I don't entirely buy that view. Not when I think of our rage. Not when I think of our righteous anger and injustice. In a world crooked and ruined with rebellion, I think deep down we all know we need a God who feels indignation every day. We know it would be a greater tragedy if God never visited for these things. We'd be terrified to discover he was an unrighteous judge who never condemned, never punished, never dealt with the crimes of the world, which is no judge at all. We need God to act. We want him to act. So back in, in Deuteronomy 9, these verses may make a lot more sense now. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, or it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that he, the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God didn't want his people thinking that they had done something to earn the promised land, like they had a right to it. And this was the sheer grace of God to them. These verses say that three times. It's, it's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your righteousness. Verse 6, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you're a stubborn people. They couldn't stake any claim on divine favor. They couldn't explain any success as a reward for good behavior. And much like them, it's not our righteousness that saves us and secures us with God. It's not because of our good that God sends us His Son. It's not because 
We're so holy that we receive the Holy Spirit. No, we are stubborn sinners, much like them. Seemingly stuck in our depraved nature and our enmity with God. And yet, and yet God blesses people in spite of people. That went for Israel, and it it still goes for us. In spite of our stubborn sin, God faithfully blesses. That's the main message here. God faithfully blesses people in spite of our stubborn sin. Verse 6, one last time. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. It's also translated as stiff-necked people which is talking about an ox or a mule resisting the yoke from their master, right? fighting it, trying to struggle, go off course, do their own thing. Daniel Block says, with his verdict of stiff-necked, Moses pricks Israel's balloon of inflated self-esteem and sets the stage for his portrayal of the Israelites' fundamentally flawed character. They have nothing to commend themselves to God, their election, occupation of the land, and prosperity within it are all gifts of divine grace granted to them in spite of their lack of merit. And likewise, we have all, all we have is a gift of divine grace, not of ourselves, and in spite of our sin. And the, and the blessings that Christ's people are promised are even greater than the promised land. Listen to how Paul puts it in Titus 3. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's Jesus, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Today, you may yet be a slave to your sin, like this verse. these verses talked about, living your days for, for passions and pleasures good news for you is that God's grace has appeared in Christ Jesus. And now that if you believe in him, you can be saved and washed and justified and given eternal life, not because of your righteousness, but because of God's mercy. I pray that you would do that today, that you would receive that, as God knows how desperately we need him and his mercy. For, for most of the rest of chapter 9, Moses goes on a rant about just how bad Israel had been. And in so doing, he, he shows how prone they were to evil, just as Canaan was. He reminds them of how, how fortunate they were now and how he warns them against repeating their sin. And last week we talked about the need to remember. Look at verse 7. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. 
From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Here's the second point we'll see. Because of our stubborn sin, God rightly judges. Because of our stubborn sin, God rightly judges. We saw this with his judgment on the Canaanites earlier, but now we see Israel was not immune to this either. Moses says they've been rebellious ever since they left Egypt, even shortly after they saw the Red Sea split at Mount Sinai, Horeb. They did the unthinkable. Look at verse 8. says, even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. Remember that Horeb was a little bit like their wedding ceremony to God. It was where God, when and where God was establishing his covenant, his new relationship with them. So this, but, but, but even before God got the words out of his mouth, they were already making an idol. It's kind of like someone cheating on their spouse on their honeymoon. Or even at the altar. Look at verse 9. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Now notice there in verse 12, it's like when God says to Moses, it's your people who you brought from Egypt. (laughs) Kind of like a parent going to another parent. Guess what your kid did today? This wasn't humorous at all. This was more chilling. This is virtually a a repudiation of the people. They're not my people right now. Not with what they're doing. We then see the the judgment that they truly deserve. Verse 13, Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you a nation mightier and greater than they. What God says to Moses here is astonishing on a couple different levels. First, it shows how extraordinary the relationship between God and Moses was. He basically says he won't judge Israel without Moses' release. Let me alone, that I may destroy them. And then he tells Moses that he's ready to start over with him. I'll make you, make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So Moses could have effectively replaced Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in God's plan. Given how angry Moses himself was, you might have thought he'd be enticed by this opportunity. But we don't see any initial reaction recorded here. And, and later on we're going to see he wasn't very excited by the prospect at all. What did he do? Well, he went to see what God was talking about. 
Verse 15, so I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. So their worship had already been corrupted by idolatry, by this heinous idolatry. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then Moses goes, all right, go ahead, God, smite them. No, actually, verse 18. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also. Uh, try, go ahead and, and try to read through those verses there again and, and try to say that sin isn't a very serious issue. Moses knew that their sin was so grievous, he fasted 40 days right after he had just fasted 40 days in order to, to pray and to weep and to beg God to spare his people. And God heard his prayer. He also prayed on behalf of, of Aaron, his brother, who had helped lead the Israelites into sin. In verse 20 he says, and, and the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. And then we see Moses get up and lead his people in repentance. Then I took the, the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. They threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. The, the golden calf incident was, is probably the most vivid example of Israel's proneness to sin, proneness to evil. It gets brought up again and again in the Bible. And the point is, they fully deserved God's wrath. Totally deserved it. They very easily could have been wiped off the face of the earth but for God's mercy. And in case that dramatic event wasn't enough, it wasn't bad enough, Moses brings up three more examples. Verse 22, At Taberah also, and at Massa, and at Kibroth and Tava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. Like, this is a recurring theme of your existence. It's your M.O. In Taberah, we know they complained to the Lord a mere three days after they left Sinai. Massa is where they put God to the test. Saw a few weeks back. And he sent them water from a rock. At Kibroth Hatava, they, they grumbled about God starving them. So he sent them quail. Oh, and if that wasn't enough proof of their depravity. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you. Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. And we've heard about that story a lot more early in Deuteronomy. In summary, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. 
It's not that there was never any good in them. But if there was a constant in their life, it was sin. And we're quick to look down on the Israelites and their ridiculously quick falls into sin. But we're also quick to overlook how quickly and frequently we fall ourselves. One minute we can be speaking a truth of God and the next minute whining like babies. We can say a a very sincere prayer to God and then minutes later doubt that he cares about us at all. On On the very day that we sing God's praises, we can dive deep into the filth of pornography. We take God's good gifts that he gives us and we, we make them so overly important to us that they become idols. It's idolatrous. We, we lie, we complain, we lust, we envy, we disobey, gossip, we hate, so much more. And we were born into this sin nature. Right? This isn't just what we do, it's who we are. I can tell my kids, I can tell all of you here, you have been sinful since the day that I knew you. And the truth is, you can say the exact same thing back to me. We do not and we cannot stand on our own. Our wickedness, our rebellion runs to deep. And the simple fact is that we deserve judgment. Wrath. We deserve hell. But the other side of the coin is that that God has made a way for us to escape his judgment. He made a way. And in foretaste of the mercy that he shows us, he shows this astounding mercy to Israel. The point we'll see is this. Again, in spite of our stubborn sin, God stubbornly shows mercy. God is more faithful than we are unfaithful. In spite, despite our sin, God stubbornly shows mercy. Just the fact that, that God listened to Moses' prayer is astounding. Speaking of which, Moses gets back to talking about his 40-day prayer session in verse 25. It says, So I, I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. So he's appealing here to how God has already mercifully and powerfully saved his people. It's almost, why did you save them if you're just going to give up on them now? Even if they totally deserved God giving up on them. Continues in verse 27. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like, for their sake, spare their descendants. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their 
wickedness or their sin. It's like, please overlook the evil that they've done. Overlook how stubborn they are. And why? Here's the, here's the key to Moses' appeal, verse 28. Lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. Now that is a bold prayer. Daniel Block explains, neither excusing his people nor minimizing their crime, Moses daringly warned Yahweh that if he destroyed the Israelites, the nations would conclude that either he was unable to carry, them, carry through on his mission of bringing them to the land, or that he had intentionally brought them into the desert to slaughter them. What was supposed to be a gracious scheme of salvation would look like a diabolical plot. Moses therefore argued that Yahweh's own reputation was at stake. He could not afford to destroy his people. Lest the land from which you brought us saved, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he's brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. He's like, Lord, think of what Egypt will think. You defeated them to deliver these people. But... It'll look like you gave up as soon as the going got tough. And people will say you couldn't do it. That you weren't able to finish the job. Or they'll conclude that, that you never loved us. That you couldn't wait to kill us. That's a daring prayer. Finally, he appeals once more to God's love and salvation. Verse 29 for they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. I like how he, he bookends his prayer there with two phrases that always went together. God's mighty hand in verse 26 and his outstretched arm in verse 29. But Moses' prayer wasn't effective because he was so clever, because he was so special. Chris Wright points out the intercession of Moses was effective because it went to the heart of God's own priorities as Moses already knew them from his long intimacy with God. God's people, God's promises, God's name. Now there are certainly many lessons we could learn about prayer here, including how powerful it can be. But the point of this passage wasn't the power of prayer. It was about the mercy of God. This prayer was answered at this point, even though we don't see the explicit answer till later. How do I know? Well, because God now starts taking action to restore the covenant. We see this as the account continues into chapter 10. It says, At that time, the Lord said to me, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Moses Continuing the story with, with God making new stone tablets might seem strange to you. But this was, this was God saying, I do still have a covenant with these people. I, I, they still are my people. 
And these tablets would be visible and sacred reminders for Israel to obey the Lord from now on. Verse 5 says, Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made, and there they are, as the Lord commanded me. Now, 40 years later, Moses is like, look, they're still right there. This is, this is real stuff. Your parents came perilously close to dying. But we've lived on to see another day because the Lord was merciful to us. As it continues, the, the parenthetical note in verses 6 to 9 might even seem stranger. It says, the people of Israel journeyed from Biroth Benedjikan to Maserah. There Aaron died, and there he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gudgada, and from Gudgada to Jotbata, a land with brooks of water. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark at the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. It seems strange. That's there. This again shows that God had answered Moses' prayer and spared his people. It also shows that, that Moses' prayer for Aaron had been successful. Even though he died later, it was later on. And it shows that, that even Aaron's death would not be the end of Israel's story, as others would carry on the work of, of mediating God's grace to the people. Finally, we get the, the clear expression of God's mercy in answer to prayer in verse 10. I myself stayed on the mountain, as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Don't lose sight here at the end. Don't lose sight of how amazing it is that God decided not to destroy them. If any of us were God in that situation, the Israelites would have been goners. No question. Now, some of us are thinking, wait, wait, so God changed his mind? But God doesn't change. Was God bluffing before with his threats? Or did Moses actually sway him? We don't have a total answer to this. We do know that Moses' prayer didn't manipulate God. It wasn't him manipulating him. We can still affirm that, that God's character and nature never changes. And we can agree that, that there is a, a mysterious dynamic to prayer that we don't fully understand. Right? And how it meshes with God's sovereignty and with our history in, in meaningful ways. We don't fully understand it. The, this text lays out a genuine encounter between Moses and the Lord. And Chris Wright makes a crucial observation here. He says, Moses recognized that this was a sincere threat that could be countered only with appeal to prior words and actions of the same God. The paradox is that in appealing to God to change, he was actually appealing to God to be consistent. So in the end, God didn't change. He stayed consistent to who he'd always been. 
God, the Lord, the Lord, a, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in, in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is just. He's righteous. He's holy. And when he judges sin, it is good and right of him to do so. But it is also in his very nature to be merciful. Part of who he is. And as James later tells us, mercy triumphs over judgment. Verse 10, we get one final tiny foretaste of the gospel. It says, the Lord was unwilling to destroy you. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. Nowhere is this scene clearer than on the cross of Christ. Where another greater man of God prayed for mercy on behalf of the guilty. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And the same man bled and shed his blood to, to secure that mercy forever. Don't have any illusions about yourself today? You deserve wrath and judgment. And yet, there's mercy for you. Because Christ bore God's judgment on your behalf. Some of you, in your struggle with sin, treat sin glibly, and you, don't, you just don't grasp how serious it is. And I encourage you, if you're in that boat, feel the weight of your sin today. Really feel it. And let godly grief lead you to repentance. Others of you already feel that weight. Heavily feel the weight. And as you struggle with sin, you constantly feel defeated and demoralized and guilty, and condemned. You beat yourself up thinking, how could God ever love me? How could God ever take me back? I encourage you today, I encourage you to, to stop giving sin more power than God's mercy. Stop giving sin more power in your life than God's mercy. Because he's stronger. And, and then lift your eyes to that, that breathtaking mercy of God that in spite of you is stubbornly new every morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know how much we need you. You see the, the deepest reaches of our hearts and you know us. You know our sin. So we come today, as many of us have come countless times, and ask you to forgive us. 
forgive our pride, our rebellion, our evil, our sin against your throne. Cleanse us, wash us, make us clean by the Spirit. Help us leave here not condemned, but free because of your great mercy. Lord, I pray that there is anyone here that is wrestling with these things and wondering whether to submit their lives to you, that they would do so that they would experience your mercy today. Even now, they give up the fight. Surrender to you. Lord, thank you for your grace. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.